Amen. You, yeah. Amen. You guys may be seated for the next little while. <clears throat> thought I was going to say a moment. I thought I was going to say a moment. <clears throat> I can preach the sermon while you stand the whole time if you would like. Hey. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 3. And so we are a few weeks into this book, and so we've been looking over the course of just late spring, early summer, both the book of Ruth and the now the book of Esther. And if you've been tracking with us, and boys and girls, if you've been tracking with us, oftentimes it seems like in life uh, that God isn't at work. You, you look around at your circumstances and it can seem like you're all alone. It can seem like the world is spinning just in, in chaos all around you. Uh, but as we learned in the book of Ruth, and as we're going to continue to learn as we go through the book of Esther here, uh, that God, our God, is in control, that he's near us, that he's guiding our lives, and, and that he is working all things together for his glory and our good, which we've seen are inseparable from one another. And so my prayer is, is that you've been encouraged as we've been working through uh, this book together and that, you, that we will, by God's grace, continue uh, to see that theme in Scripture here. But we're looking this morning at Esther chapter 3, and as I've been doing, I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then I'm going to kind of summarize it for us this morning, and then we're going to look at just a few things that, um, that perhaps we should glean from chapter 3 here. And so... We don't know who wrote Esther. Perhaps it was Mordecai, Esther's cousin. Uh, But what we do know for certain is that the Holy Spirit of God wrote this book, that the Holy Spirit of God has preserved this book so that we could sit here, read it, and be changed by it. And so the Holy Spirit says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, he did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him, and they spoke to Mordecai day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And keep in mind that at this stage in the game, Ahasuerus is ruling over all the, kind of all the, the known world, or has a, has a large kingdom, if you will. This wasn't a small kingdom by any stretch of the imagination. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasuries. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to this king's satraps and to the governors and to over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, every province and its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Again, think Kremlin here. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this word. God, we thank you that we can... Read it, that we can have confidence that you've providentially preserved it, Lord. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would humble us. Your Holy Spirit would help us to see the things that we ought to see. So that we can be conformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're not sure how much time uh, has passed from chapter Three to our text here in chapter, or from chapter two to chapter three, but we move now to this sort of genocide plan that that's hatched by a man named Haman, and, and in the opening chapter, or in the opening of, of of chapter three, we're not only introduced to Haman, but we see that Ahasuerus promoted this man uh, to to a position that would be the equivalent of of say like a, a prime minister. That, that's the position that, that Haman was, was, was promoted to by Ahasuerus, by King Xerxes. The, the only one who would exceed his power, Haman's power, would be the, the, the king himself. Now naturally, after how we saw chapter 2 in, we would think that Mordecai would be the one that's getting this sort of promotion, right? He's saved the king's life. He's thwarted this plan by Two of the king's eunuchs, they were going to together assassinate this king. And we saw that Mordecai learned of this plan, that somehow this plan was um, proven to be true. And, uh, and that the news was delivered by Esther, who's now the queen. 
uh, where we are in our text. It was delivered by Queen Esther, but it was delivered in the name of Mordecai. So there was, there was no question as to who thwarted this assassination plot, but we don't see Mordecai being the one that's promoted here. We see this, this new fellow, this, this guy named Haman, who's, who's promoted to this position of, like, prime minister. Mordecai, he seems to be overlooked, seems to be even perhaps forgotten. And then things heat up in this narrative when Mordecai refuses to bow, when he refuses to pay homage or pay respect to Haman in, in this new position that Haman has. And, and some commentators have, have concluded that to bow or to pay homage here would have been the equivalent of worship. So it goes that, that Mordecai, being a Jew, had to refuse to worship anyone other than the Lord would be the theory of some of the commentators, but I don't think that that's what's going on in our text. I don't think that there's any reason to, to think in this passage that bowing or paying special respect is, is worship. Also, Mordecai living and working in the citadel in Susa, even before Esther became queen, would have meant that he would have had to have bowed to King Ahasuerus, to King Xerxes, at some point, just given the proximity that he, uh, of his person to the, to the kingdom. And, and we see Esther do this very thing as she pleads for the preservation of the Jewish people when in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. We see the respects that she pays to Ahasuerus. So I, I don't think that that's what is going on in this chapter of Scripture here. What seems to be going on has to do with the ancestry of Mordecai versus the ancestry of Haman. Our text says that Haman, if you look back with me, was an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Okay, Agagite was in the lineage of Agag, who's the king of the Amalekites. Okay, the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, broadly speaking, were the enemies of God. And because they were the enemies of God, they were, again, broadly speaking, they were the enemies of God's people. First Samuel chapter 15, if we look at the first couple of verses here, gives us this picture. It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Exodus chapter 17 is, is what the Lord is recounting here for King Saul, who he's speaking to in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The Amalekites, they, they sought to destroy God's people while they were in the wilderness, while they were especially vulnerable. And after Joshua and the Israelites de defeated them, God said that he would blot out the very name of the Amalekites. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19. And when God commanded Saul to do this very thing in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul disobeyed. If you know the story, he disobeyed. He spared cattle and he spared the king for his own, according to his own wisdom, which the wisdom of man is, is foolishness, is, is folly. But in some ways, what we're looking at here this morning in our text is a ripple effect of disobedience. It's a ripple effect of disobedience 
Haman is an Amalekite. Okay, he's an Amalekite. Now, Mordecai is a Jew, as we know, but he's not just a Jew. And I've read this since we started this uh, sermon series in the book of Esther, but he's not just a Jew, but chapter 2 of Esther, again, says that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. This is what I've tried to remind us about Mordecai here the last few weeks. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which was King Saul's tribe, okay, that, and that he's the son of Jair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish. Kish was the, the father of Saul. He's the father of Saul. So we, we have an Amalekite, and we have someone that's not just, not just Jewish, but he's, he's in the tribe and in the family of the very one who disobeyed God in the first place as it related to wiping out the Amalekites. This is why I think that Mordecai wouldn't bow. This is why I don't think he'll bow. He, w- he would be bowing, in effect, to God's enemy, to, to the enemy of God's people. And Mordecai's refusal made Haman, according to our text, full of fury. Full of fury is what the text says. And, and I wonder, especially with that expression, and, and especially as it related to a refusal to bow or to pay respect or to pay homage to, I wonder if the author of Esther is trying to reconnect us to, to the book of Daniel again. Because that phrasing is used regarding how King Nebuchadnezzar was described when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow to his golden statue. Right? He, he tried to murder them, tried to murder those guys by, by throwing them into a furnace that was hotter, turned up hotter than it normally was. And so, so Haman, who's full of fury and in this massive overreaction that's equivalent to the massive overreaction that we saw with King Ahasuerus in chapter 1, he now seeks, because of the disrespect that he feels from Mordecai, he now seeks... He wants to exterminate all of the Jewish people. He wants to wipe them all out. Now, we, what we don't want to do is we're reading this story, and as we're thinking about this together, we don't want to confuse the events that we see here with the events of, uh, that were, say, leading up to World War II. Okay? That, that's not what, we go, that was what, what was going on with, with Hitler and the Nazis who sought to exterminate the, the Jewish people. What's going, in our tech, going on in our text isn't anti-Semitism. What was happening between the Amalekites and the Jews had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. That's a wrong reading if we're importing that here. What we see going on here is religious. It's not, it's not ethnic. Because the Amalekites, they hated God. And because they hated God, they hated God's people, which we'll revisit in just a moment. But, but just to, to help show us that... Um, the, the harmony that people could have even in the Old Testament that came from different cultural backgrounds so that we can see that this isn't um, some, some sort of racist thing going on. Think back to Ruth for a moment. Right, we just finished working through that book, but Ruth was a Moabite. Okay? She, she was a Moabite. She was a part of a pagan society that, if you remember back, they, they themselves tried to enslave the, the Jewish people. They tried to enslave God's people. Yet Ruth was accepted into Jewish society. Right? She was accepted in Jewish society. 
And we should see here in Esther that Mordecai's refusal, refusal to bow and pay his respects with Haman's hating Mordecai, or to pay respects in, in Haman's hating Mordecai, isn't about ethnicity. Again, it's religious. Ruth forsook what it meant to be a Moabite, and she entered into the covenant promises of God, and thus she was welcomed by God's people. She was welcomed by God's people. Ruth essentially became Jewish, and, she, and she's not the only one that we see in the Old Testament who did that. But as we see in this chapter, Haman was thoroughly, uh, he was thoroughly an Amalekite. Haman was, a, was thoroughly, to his bone, took pride in being an Amalekite. And, 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 and Mordecai knows that. Right? The, and, and, and the kingdom would have been aware of that. The kingdom had an aroma of hating the Jewish people. Right? Under the rule of King Ahasuerus, there was this hatred for Jewish people. That's why one of the reasons Mordecai told Esther to conceal her heritage, to conceal her identity, to conceal her faith even. Right? Haman planned to, to finish what the Amalekites couldn't finish originally. His plan was to exterminate God's people from the face of the planet. So Haman, he hated God. He was an enemy of God, and his hatred for God is demonstrated in how he proceeded to treat all of God's people. There was no fear of God before his eyes. Now, edicts are all over this book, okay? Edicts that have behind them wicked, manipulative, controlling intents. And think about for a moment the progression of the edicts that we've seen so far just in these first three chapters. First, we saw an edict go out, this big, ridiculous feast and festival and party that lasts 187 days, and this edict goes out from King Ahasuerus. There's liberty in drinking. Drink as much as you want, drink as little as you want. Don't drink at all, but know that it's according to my edict that you can choose whether or not you're going to drink, not drink, drink a lot. Look how benevolent I am, right? We see an edict like that go out, chapter 1. All right, we see an edict go out as well to summon, uh, uh, or we see an edict go out as well as it relates, uh, in the, again, this massive overreaction because of the disobedience, if you will, of Queen Vashti in refusing to be uh, treated in the way that Ahasuerus wanted to treat her. And this edict goes out uh, in all the land that, that women are to respect their husbands, that their husbands are masters over them. We see that edict go out as well throughout all the land. And, th- and then we see an edict that goes out that is summoning women in order for uh, Ahasuerus to find his new queen, right, to replace Queen Vashti, which ends up being Queen Esther. We saw and looked at that last, last week. And now we see an edict goes out that, that, that is saying that the Jewish people are an enemy to the way of life for everyone that's living in the kingdom. It's the edict that we see here now, right? Therefore, all Jewish people need to be exterminated. And so we see the way these, these edicts progress, and, and, and we see the manipulation behind them. We see the ulterior motives, but the but think about this for a moment. The, the Jewish way of life in, in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, it had to be anemic at best. 
It had to be anemic at best. Right? This, this comes after uh, the Jewish people are allowed to enter back into God's covenant land. They're, they're allowed to go back to the promised land. And so the Jews that we see here that are remaining here are Jews that chose to stay there. Right? And, and, and perhaps some of them, many of them would have been born there and they chose to stay there. But, but their faith is it related to being a distinct people of God living in this kingdom which required you to assimilate and adopt their pagan customs and to, as we looked at last week, privatize your own faith, right? These were things that the Jewish people would have to have been doing for so long, for just a couple of generations for the ones that have stayed, that decided to stay behind. Yet despite how the Jewish people assimilated in the culture, Haman is still able to authorize, to, to paint them as if they're a threat, okay, and to authorize the extermination of absolutely all of them. And, and the, the author of Esther in this text goes to great lengths to show us just how uninterested or rather self-absorbed uh, King Ahasuerus is. He, he's, he's, he's focused only on himself, right? Haman comes in with this, this really vague story Right? He doesn't even tell Ahasuerus that it's the Jewish people that he's seeking to exterminate. He, he knows Ahasuerus well. He knows how Ahasuerus thinks. And, and the moment that he tells Ahasuerus that there are a people that are a threat to his way of life, to his kingdom, Ahasuerus, he knows, will play right into his hand. Look back at, the verse, uh, look back at verse 8 with me. This is, how, this is how Haman tells Ahasuerus about this this threat and what's to be done here. He says, there's a certain people, okay? There's a certain people. There's vagueness here. They're scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, and they may put it in the king's treasuries. Right? Again, notice the vagueness. There are certain people, Haman tells the king. Their laws are different. They don't keep the king's laws, don't they? Like, What laws are they breaking at this point? Right? And, and then there, this is an interesting phrase. It's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. In, in the Hebrew, that phrase tolerate them means to give them rest. Haman's saying it's not in the king's best interest to give these people rest. Right? The antithesis of Christ, our king, who invites us to come to him for rest. And then Haman agrees to pay money, to, to lose money, if the king will only agree to his plan. There's no downside here to the king in the way this is being presented and I read that 10,000 talents of silver, that's a, a lot of money. That's a, a lot of money. I don't know how much it translates to exactly, but what the author of Esther is communicating that, like, think millions and millions of dollars here is what Haman's getting at. So this edict goes out, right, in, in our chapter here, it ends chillingly. It ends chillingly. Haman and the king having drinks is how it ends. All right, what? And they're having drinks while the entire kingdom, our text says, is thrown into confusion. It's thrown into confusion and perhaps even scared. 
Right? They're thrown into confusion by this edict that's sent out in all the provinces regarding the very people that they've known their entire lives. Now think of the coldness here. Think of the, the callousness here. Again, the, the entire known world is set into utter confusion by this mandate, this illogical edict to wipe out an entire people group in one day. In one day. And as the entire known world is in confusion, the king and Haman, these wicked men, they sit down to drink, right? To enjoy themselves and to joy, enjoy their company and the prospect of their materialistic flourishing and their hedonistic, godless hedonistic flourishing. They just revel in that. They're not concerned about the welfare of the people, they're not concerned with even how the edict lands. They indulge themselves as this this wicked mandate spreads. So a few things for us to to see in this kingdom, this this wicked kingdom kingdom ruled by this wicked king who's appointing uh, wicked people that are second in command, that are after uh, God's covenant people, because ultimately um, they themselves... They think themselves to be God. And when you think yourself to be God, you're full of fury at the idea that there's a God above you and which you're going to give an accounting to. So a few things for us to to see here in chapter 3 of Esther. First is this, the world, and and these are takeaways in your notes, so you don't have to rush to jot them down, but the world will hate you because it hates God. The world will hate you because it hates God. And, and I know that that seems like very strong language, right? But we're either brought into the kingdom of God through the gospel that conquers us. The text says that apart from the intervening work, or the Bible teaches us that apart from the inter- intervening work of God, that we're not neutral. We're enemies of God, right? We're enemies of God. And in order to become allies, the Holy Spirit of God has to regenerate our hearts causing us to express repentance in faith. And so, boys and girls, apart from God saving us in Jesus Christ, we don't want God and we don't like God. That's why we need God to do a work in our lives because our sin clouds our our vision of us knowing who God is. And so there's, there's no neutrality. So as Christians, the world will hate you because it hates God. And returning to this issue of Haman and Mordecai for a moment, again, the, the Amalekites were, and it's as clear as day in the Old Testament, they were enemies of God. That was their long-standing history. Again, that's the significance of Mordecai refusing to bow to this Amalekite, to this Agagite, as some translation says. But the bigger picture for us here is to see that this is the spirit of the world. And, and by world, I mean that which is in opposition to God. Right? Jesus told his disciples this very thing. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. If the world hates you, right? He tells it, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. If the world hates you, it has hated me before you. Right? The, the outworking of the world hating you it, it, it comes from the root of their hating Christ. They're hating God. Right? He says, if you were of this world, the world would love you 
as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, right, as a result of that, as a result of me choosing you out of the world, the world hates you. Right now, this isn't, this isn't Christ saying the world will hate you because you're a jerk, right? right? Or the world will hate you because you're obnoxious and you're arrogant and you're rude, right? Unfortunately, many professing Christians can be that way. But what Christ is getting at is this. Who he is, right, who Christ is, is at opposition with a sinful world. Who Christ is, is at opposition with a sinful world. And, and those of us who truly enjoy him, enjoy Christ, and enjoy our union with Christ Jesus, will be swept up into that ancient conflict. It's just what's, what's going to happen. It's just the way it is right now, living in these conditions. Right? So if you're a Christian, right, it, it's... It's because Christ chose you, even according to this text, it's because Christ chose you out of this world and he declared, you're mine, right? You're mine, I died for you, you belong to me. I spilled my blood for you. And a commitment to Christ necessitates by the Spirit of God a particular way of life. It necessitates for us a particular confession, okay? And as Christians, we're committed to an exclusive gospel, one in which we're not allowed, we don't have the authority to modify, we don't have the authority to tweak, we don't have the authority to be embarrassed by it, we don't have the authority to keep silent about it. We're committed as Christians to Christ as King over all of life. So we're to bring ourselves by... by cooperating with the Holy Spirit of God, living in us as temples of the, the Holy Spirit of God, we're to bring ourselves into subjection to that fixed reality. Boys and girls, it's about living according to what you say you believe. So we bring ourselves into subjection to that fixed reality. We labor, we work hard into that fixed reality, and we herald it, we talk about that fixed reality. Right? The good news, the gospel, we talk about it in love, in sincerity, in passion, in conviction, trusting that the Holy Spirit of God will accomplish His plan and accomplish His, person, His purpose for the nations. And that kind of commitment to the gospel, both in life and in speech, Christ over all of life, that kind of commitment will have an impact. There's no way... For that kind of commitment to not have an impact. Because this isn't a neutral world. Right? It's a world in which we have Christ or chaos. So the gospel going out. Us bringing ourselves into subjection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And us proclaiming again in love and truth and sincerity. The gospel of Jesus Christ will accomplish what the Holy Spirit of God wants it to accomplish. Which should encourage us and motivate us. Right? But it'll either soften people, as the, as the word of God goes out, it'll soften people. It'll warm their affections toward God and his gospel, making them lovers of God and his gospel. Or it'll harden them. It'll harden them. And, 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 and they will despise the message. 
and maybe they'll despise you. And, and when it hardens others, as Christians, we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't be hurt. We shouldn't be defensive. We shouldn't be afraid. Right? We have to be steadfast. We have to be steadfast. And we look to our Lord who was steadfast, knowing that those the gospel hardens hated him long before they hated you. Right? And in our trusting in the Lord and looking to him as our example, right? not just our Savior, but our, as our example, our example of perseverance, right? we have to remember that it, it's his gospel. It's his gospel and, and his method of proclaiming the gospel that conquers his enemies, conquers even the worst of enemies. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. Now as he went on his way, right, Saul, who we also know as Paul, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Before he even heard those words, he's already on the ground. This prideful, arrogant persecutor of God's people is on the ground. Saul says, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Get up, rise, enter into the city, and you're going to be told what you're going to do. Christ in his gospel conquered Paul, known as Saul. Conquered him through his good news. The gospel of God, it can conquer the heart of any man, any man, woman or child that God chooses to conquer. Right? So we, we stay firm in Christ. We don't despair when we get strong negative reactions based on our commitment to Christ and our commitment to heralding the good news of the gospel. So that's point one. Secondly, laziness is more deadly than we realize. Laziness is more deadly than we realize. There's an example in Ahasuerus here for us. He, he didn't even bother to investigate the, or, or ask questions even regarding Haman's plan. Right? He, he, was too, he was too disengaged and too self-absorbed in his own world. And the ripple effect of that was that it almost led to the extermination of an entire people group. Almost led to uh, an extermination of the Jewish people. Our laziness has bigger consequences than we could ever imagine. Right, we looked at this earlier this year, but when we were going through Paul's letter to Timothy, right, 1 Timothy, Paul tells the men in Ephesus that a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than what? An unbeliever. Those are strong words. Those are strong words. A lazy man who leads his, his family into poverty is worse than an unbeliever in the eyes of God. Right? And I don't, I don't think that we should throw out that this isn't just referring to physical poverty, materials, putting a roof over the head. This is spiritual poverty too. Right? A man that leads his family into spiritual poverty, physical poverty as well, is worse than an unbeliever. Right? Jesus says that those who are faithful in, in little will be faithful in much, and those that are dishonest with little 
will be dishonest with much. Luke chapter 16, verse 10, laziness is dishonesty. It's lying. Right? You, you lie to yourself. You, you lie to others. Most of all, you lie to God. You lie to God. Paul tells the church to stay away from the lazy man. He says, have nothing to do with the lazy man. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Right? The Proverbs, for time's sake, I won't go through all of them, but the Proverbs have a lot to say about the lazy man. But Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Right? Laziness is, is more dangerous and sinister and pervasive than we might think. In my experience, men are way more lazy than women, although I, I've known lazy women before. But, but, but laziness, laziness deteriorates the soul. It deteriorates the soul because the soul is the first thing that a lazy person neglects. Right? If, if you see a lazy person just from outward observable behavior, known that their spiritual disciplines have long since fall, fallen by the wayside. Right? Someone who, who gives care and attention and, and has a good work ethic as it relates to their soul and the prioritizing of their soul, it will correlate and touch the other things in their life. In their life. And we see laziness, it has a web of destruction that, that spreads or has tentacles that spreads and it hurts people that you claim to love, right? Ahasuerus is laziness, which again is just a self, uh, an absorption of self or this, this ungodly self-love, right? It caused him to sign the death warrant of the very man that saved his life, Mordecai. Laziness is deadly. And the way out, according to Solomon, is to consider the ant. Consider the ant, Proverbs 6, 6, which means repent and work. Get to work. Get to work. Right? Working hard six days makes this day, the Lord's day, such a sweeter day. Makes it such a sweeter day. So renew your mind, see work is good because it is good. God created it even before the fall of man. And work is unto the Lord, right? Christ is Lord over your work. Three, man may scheme, but the Lord's plan is always accomplished. Man may scheme, but the Lord's plan is always accomplished. There's a lot of scheming in this chapter, right? We could call this chapter, we could call this sermon, Haman scheme if we wanted to. Right? There's a lot of scheming in the scriptures by different people. There's a lot of scheming in our world. There's a lot of scheming in politics. There's a lot of scheming in the workplace. There's, a, there's scheming, sadly, sometimes in our very homes. Right? We see ulterior motives. We see deceit. We see hidden, harmful agendas. And this has been going on since the beginning of time. It's nothing new. Right? We, we don't live in a unique period of time. Yet, as we've already seen in this book, the Lord graciously flips the schemes of men to accomplish his good purposes. The Lord positioned Esther and positioned Mordecai in just the right place so that he could set the stage to preserve his covenant people. 
Right? The, the Lord is always moving and advancing his good redemptive plan uh, forward, foiling the wicked and evil intentions, the wickedness and the evil intentions of man. Right? Proverbs 21:31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle. We know this, but the victory belongs to who? To the Lord. To the Lord. In other words, man can plan. Man can plan. But it's ultimately the Lord's counsel that's going to stand. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says that very thing. Quote, for I'm God, there is no other. Right? The Lord's speaking through the prophet Isaiah here. For I'm God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 to 10. Isn't as Christians, that should be a comforting reminder for us. It should comfort us, right? Absolutely everything passes through the hands of our sovereign, good, wise, glorious God. That is deeply comforting to me. Nothing, absolutely nothing is by chance. Nothing is by chance, right? Everything is guided by his providential hand, and he works all things together for his glory and for our good. The last thing that we should see here as a takeaway in Esther chapter 3 is that God has every right to exterminate us, but he gives us grace and mercy. God has every right to exterminate us, but he gives us grace and mercy. Right? That's probably the most important takeaway for us this morning. It's probably the most important takeaway for our lives. We would live life different if we were more mindful of that. Right? It should be sobering to us. For King Ahasuerus and Haman to exterminate the entire Jewish people, that would have been wicked and that would have been unjust. For us to inherit what our wages earned, right? what, which is what our sins earned, not just physical death, but spiritual death, right? to, to receive a, that just wage from God, the wage which is an eternal hell, the place of God's fierce, righteous wrath, for sin, for sinners, that's just. That's just. What we have inherited instead, instead of that, what we've inherited is what we don't deserve. It's what none of us deserve. Right? The free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, we have received, we have obtained grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. One commentator says this about, the, about Esther chapter 3. Here is no shallow logic and lightly considered reasoning. Here is the deepest logic of all, a logic that relates to time itself and the eternal counsels of God, whereby the actions of one man, the man Christ Jesus, now have redemptive consequences for his whole people as they place their trust in him. Instead of letters of death, Ringing, uh, winging their way speedily to all corners of the empire in every language, now the gospel of life goes to every tribe and nation in their own tongues. Indeed, as the gospel penetrates our hearts, we ourselves become living letters from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2-3. to 3. We are God's mail delivery system to bring his message of life to our neighbors and to the furthest nations. We carry the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. 2 Corinthians 2, 
15. Isn't that encouraging to you this morning? Right? To know that in eternity past, God set his affections on you based on his good character. To know that Christ accomplished that salvation plan for you and that the Holy Spirit of God applied it to your life and has sealed you until you acquire possession of that eternal life that Jesus Christ secured. That should be deeply encouraging to us. And in the here and now, we, we take that that beautiful and glorious, unchanging good news, we take that and we deliver that as God's mail delivery system until people from every... That's the edict that goes out from God's people to all corners of the earth. The edict of Haman and Ahasuerus is death. The edict of God is your sins can be forgiven because Jesus Christ died for your sins. Right? That is the triune God that we serve And that we worship. And if you know him this morning, thank him. Let that reality wash over you anew this morning. And if you don't know him, consider this your letter. Consider this your letter. Consider this your edict. You can be forgiven of your sins, no matter your sins. You can know this great and glorious king. Repent of your sin. Turn away from them. And rest in Christ alone for your salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this chapter. God, we thank you for allowing us, God, to just see how good you are. Again, in contrast to the wickedness that we see in chapter 3. Lord, we thank you that your edicts are not like the edicts of Ahasuerus, God. We thank you that our sins really can be forgiven. And we give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the time where we come to the Lord's table. <clears throat> Each Lord's